Hey everybody, this is Bevan. Welcome to Bevan, a femme over 40 and her friends podcast. I'm your host, Bevan. I've said my name three times. It's time to start the show. Uh, today, I'm so excited to introduce you to ta- Dr. Tanya Gilbert. Um, she and I have known each other, gosh, I don't, I can't pinpoint the year that I met her, but like, I feel like I, you know, we, we went to a festival together for many, many years. And so we saw each other at least once a year for about two weeks. Um, and I, I just want to cop to this. I never got close to Tanya because I, it was a total self image issue. Um, I had a real thing. I'm, I am not the extrovert people believe me to be. I think that's, um, hilarious that I, I think I come off really outgoing. Um, but that's actually been a skill I've had to learn. I was an only child. Um, and very shy. I used to spend my time on playgrounds with my head in a book. Uh, we moved a lot when I was a little kid and I changed schools a lot. And I, so just like socializing and connecting to people was hard. And especially if I thought someone was cool (laughs) or like, um, you know, just had things that I wanted. And I just remember when I first met Tanya, like I just, was so intimidated by her because she was just beautiful and um, super femme and in the woods, which was like what I wanted to be. And um, yeah, I just like, I remember like never really connecting to her because I was just, I had all these walls up of insecurity and it's amazing how insecurity kind of keeps us from having intimacy with other people. And I'm just so grateful and glad that I did all of the self-development work I had to do to develop my self-image so that I can now have friends as cool and awesome as Dr. Tanya Gilbert. Um, And we also talk a little bit in this episode about um, our friend V who passed away. And she's someone who um, was also very femme and flamboyant and um, self-assured and loving and peaceful. And someone that I really, like, I never once took a selfie with V, even though I adored her and um, really valued her in my life because I was always too afraid to ask her if I could take her picture. Isn't that hilarious? Like, I'm a selfie queen. Any of my friends can tell you, like, I love to take a selfie. And there is just uh, something I've had to work through with my self-image. I'm kind of realizing in hindsight, like, that it was all self-image. And I think it all kind of comes down to humility too, which is, I think humility is best described as just believing that you're the same as other people. Um, So it's not putting anyone on a pedestal, because if you put someone on a pedestal, uh, they will fall off, uh, because everyone is human. And likewise, uh, if you're on someone else's pedestal, you're going to fall off. So um, the, the best bet is to just see yourself as even with everybody else. And you're just a human having a human experience. And so are they and trying to find common ground and connection. Um, and so I just want to say this as a preface to this episode, just to encourage you, if you're the kind of person that like, you know, is like, oh, they'll never want to be friends with me or they'd never want to talk to me. Just get out of your own way and make the connection anyway, because you're never going to regret it making the connection, but you will regret um, your friend dying and not having any selfies with them. I'll say that as a very, very real, real result of like my, my kind of lack of humility in that. So I'm excited for this episode. Tanya has so many smart things to say about change, about fear, about stepping out of your comfort zone and just doing something new. Um, And I just want, I think you're going to be so inspired by this. And um, I hope that some of you out there who are dealing with um, career change or life hurdles um, feel connected to Tanya's story and reach out and uh, maybe have a session with her or you know, just see how she can help you transform your life. She's amazing. Tanya's so great. Couldn't, I can't stop talking about how great this episode is. 
But first, uh, the best way to support this podcast is to join my Patreon page. Patreon is a website that enables creators like me to create membership benefits for folks like you. Um, You can join for as little as two bucks a month. Every dollar counts to helping me make the world safer for people to love themselves. And uh, my flagship tier, the thing I'm most proud of, is my Fat Kid Dance Party aerobics videos. Um, Fat Kid Dance Party is an aerobics class I created for anyone who feels left behind by mainstream fitness. Um, If you've ever been called too fat, too much, too dramatic, or felt too awkward to dance, this is the supportive class for you. Um, I offer four classes at a time, a 10-minute, a 20-minute, a 45-minute, and a 55-minute class. Um, And they all kind of range from some are just stretch aerobics classes, some are fully on dancey, poppy, cheerful um, aerobics. And, um, but there's always a a pretty wide variety to choose from. And during the Corona quarantine, I now have five classes available because I just wanted to beef it up a little bit more. Um, and yeah, so it's really fun. It's very much like come as you are. Minimum participation is cheering along. Um, and you've got this. And I also offer other fun benefits like a special podcast of mini episodes only for subscribers. It includes meditations, Reiki healings, and um, little anecdotes from me about things that I've been going through or things that I'm learning or self-care nuggets or questions that are asked by uh, my Patreon members. And I answer them on that little podcast and also updates from me that you don't hear anywhere else. Uh, and in addition to that, if you're if you're on a ball and budget and you want to join my self-care package club, I send one out quarterly that includes a tea that I blend myself. I'm very obsessed and passionate uh, about tea and um, I infuse it with Reiki healing. So you'll get delicious Reiki healing tea along with some other self-care goodies from me. Um, and I just I love doing it. And I'm so appreciative to my Patreon supporters. Like I literally like the last year and a half of my life I've been uh, doing Patreon and going through some of the hardest challenges I've had. Um, You can look back at any of the past episodes and and learn more about that. But um, having the steady support of the folks supporting my Patreon and, um, you know, believing in me and wanting the self-care that I offer has just been so amazing and really enabled me to um, amp up the work that I'm able to do. And I'm super, super appreciative of anybody out there who has been a member uh, past, present, future, whatever, just know that from the bottom of my heart, I am thanking you so much for co-creating with me because I could not be doing this without you. So with that said, oh, and you can find it all at patreon.com slash F-K-D-P, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash F-K-D-P, which stands for Fat Kid Dance Party. So with that said, on with the show. here yes i am excited too i am so excited when you call me it was like oh yay you know just for you to you to send me a message i was so excited just to hear from you then when you invited me to um be on your podcast i was like wow you know so oh thanks tanya um dr tanya gilbert is a behavior health expert who helps people have happier lives is that a great way to sum it up? 
that sounds pretty much it. I mean, that is the summary and that's the outcome. You know, how we get to, to having happier lives are individualized, but that is my goal for the outcome. It's for you to just have a happier life, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I just thought, um, I was just uh, getting reconnected with what you were up to and seeing the work that you were doing to help people in career pivots who are, you know, mm -hmm. I think these times, uh, you know, we're recording this, this is May of 2020. We're in the middle of this Corona pandemic. A lot of people have had their careers basically mm -hmm. just like tossed to the floor and scattered around and are kind of left picking mm -hmm. up pieces. And you have a really powerful offering that you're doing uh, to help people kind of get some guidance in their career. So I really wanted to talk to you about that now because I thought it was so um, vital. Okay. Um, so, Absolutely. Yeah. Will you just give us a little nutshell about what, what you do with folks around careers? Well, I, I'm trying to think, where should I start? <laughs> because I work with people from every gamut of the industry. I work with folks that are students that are in school trying to figure out their career path. And I help them uh, select maybe um, the best career path for them at that particular time. And um, the thing that, and I've, I work with um, seniors that are at the end of their careers trying to figure out what's next. So from the student that's starting to the senior that's leaving, I work with everyone uh, completely across the board. And the thing that I try to help everyone understand when it comes to careers, there is, uh, even though there are people that have worked their careers for 20 or 30 years, you're usually going to have two, three, maybe five different career paths, you know, in a lifetime. I mean, we start working at about 16 or so, and we're not done working until we're like 66. So that's like 40 years of your life you're working and most of the time you're not going to work in the same capacity. So I, I challenge people not to be so locked into the label, the title, the position that they're in, especially um, when you're going to do a transition and we are going to have to transition at some point. So Take everything that you do from volunteerism to charity events, to paid jobs, to um, helping the kid build a car in the yard. All of that's part of who you are and part of what you do. And so I take the whole person. I have a holistic approach to um, career coaching. I'm, I'm not a person that look at your job and say, Oh, well, you're this executive, so we're going to put you in this executive position. No, we, I look at what you did in that position and create new positions for you, um, new careers for you. Uh, some folks uh, decide they don't want to work nine to five anymore. And I help them take what they have and create where they want to be. So that's the main thing that I do when it comes to careers. I help you... Um, Based on your personality, this is where my therapy come in at. 
I'll do an assessment, like a personality assessment for careers, not for mental health. But all uh, personalities are not suited to do this everything. And so I'll find out what you enjoy, what your hobbies are, what all those things are. And then I'll take that and I'll match it with your personality. And then I'll come out and I'll say, these are the things that appear to be suited for you. What do you think? And then I'll have someone say, well, I, I never seen myself as doing this. But then again, they're looking at the title and not the description of what it entails, because it might be something in that little thing. And I always use being a um, housewife or stay-at-home mother as an example, because in that position, you are an executive, you are a parenting specialist, you are an accountant, you are a physician's assistant, you're everything in, in that position, you know? You, yeah. You're the CEO. And so I say, if you look at that, and you've done that since you've had your children, and now your kids are grown. Now you say you're an empty nester, and you've been doing that for the last 25 years. Now you want to go to work, and I'll have folks say, I haven't worked. I've been taking care of my kids. I don't know how to do anything. I don't, or I've been married, you know, and my partner took care of me, and I don't know what to do with myself. I have no experience. I have been this. So by me having a holistic approach, I take everything from that person, from their life, everyday walks in life and their personalities and what makes them happy, you know, their hobbies, and try to help them create a career path that will sustain them and they will be happy being in it. So that's, that's what I do a lot of. Oh, I love that. And that's so like, it's so helpful to have an outside perspective because I think a lot of us get really caught up in our limiting beliefs of who we are and what we do and what, what we want to even be doing. And not just like limited beliefs about like how we perceive ourselves, but then also we get really caught up with how other people perceive us. And like are often mm -hmm. doing things. I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast before about getting whole degrees and doing whole career paths because you wanted to impress, you know, someone in your family, yeah. or something, you mm -hmm. know? Mm -hmm. So it's really, really helpful to have somebody like there to kind of spotlight for you what's possible, but then also spotlight maybe the ways that you're getting in your own way. Mm -hmm. uh, true. Yes. And most people do. They get, that is the biggest stopper it is. It's folks getting in their own way. Uh -huh. I mean, nobody else gets in your way. You get in your own way all the time. You are absolutely single-handedly sabotaging what you could do and the possibilities because somehow you get in your own way. You get stuck. You get, you know, like just get lost in your head. Yeah. And I'm saying to folks all the time, you know, well, I got to do this. No, 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 no you did that, you know, it's okay. And I always encourage folks when they get nervous about work. Okay. When you got this job, what were you doing? Looking for a job. So this, that's a process that don't stop. And so you just take this job you're working and see how it can help you go to the next place. You know, is that the end of the world? I've gotten so many calls with, um, since COVID, about 
folks losing their job, even um, folks is in business for themselves. You know, it's like, what am I going to do now? I've been doing this. What can I do? And I still um, do the same thing with small businesses. I help small businesses develop. And when I do that, I look at where they are, what they're doing, and what do you want different? You know, how can you, uh, I'll just say, rebrand yourself or, or, you know, how do you do it? What can you take from this? You know, you might not be the coffee drinker anymore, but maybe you can make the coffee and, and, and you have everything you need to do that. But we get in our own way. Even when we go to interviews, take that's another area I, I uh, work with. I don't do just like what to wear, you know, how to come on time and that. I literally do mock interviews with my clients and we research the companies that they're going to interview with. And then I literally ask the questions that they're going to be asked at the interview and I teach them how to respond. You know, how do you respond so concisely but continue to be uniquely who you are. My premise is always, there is 10 other yous. They got the same exact everything you have. You know, you all have the same clothes on, everything. What will you leave them with? And that's my goal, is to help them leave that person with something that they're going to remember them by besides the orange paper that they type the resume on, you know, something that will stand out. <laughs> yeah, totally. Absolutely. And I think so many people like um, get, especially early in a career or early in a search or early um, in mm-hmm. a new area, people get really stressed about interviews mm-hmm. and having that level of like mm-hmm. on the field preparation, so to speak, um, Mm-hmm. It's really helpful because when you're in situations where you're under pressure, you sink to the level of your training. So if you train hard, mm-hmm. you're going to excel no matter what, because you're ready for different experiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But people have, don't understand even an interview is not a cookie cutter approach. Yeah. Every interview is unique to the position that you're interviewing for. Every interview is unique to the person you're interviewing with. I help my clients learn how to read the interviewer, you know, read that person. What energy are they bringing in that room Mm. and how not to respond to some of it? Because I've had clients to say, you know, they seem to be really upset or detached. I don't know why they did the interview. They had already made up their mind probably about someone. Um, And I'm saying, no, it's one you and it's one them, but they've interviewed 50 other people just like you. They've asked the same questions. You got to do something to wake them up, get Mm -hmm. them back engaged, Yeah, you know? And when you feel like they're not engaging with you, then that means you need to bring your game on. That's something you got to bring your game on to get them re- reconnected with you because they're exhausted. Their brain is probably fried, yeah. you know? Mm-hmm. Especially after you've been interviewing for that long. That is a, a very brain frying. Yeah, <laughs> right? Like you're head. exhausted. Yeah. <laughs> you're exhausted from going on interviews. Just imagine how the interviewer feels. 
Yeah, you know. exactly. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, especially if they're not the kind of person that really like enjoys talking to people because not everybody who's interviewing for people is someone who loves a human connection. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. For me, when I'm in that position to interview, mm-hmm. I enjoy it because I do it as a conversation because everything I really need to know about you are in your resume, right? Yeah. And so resumes are also very, very important. And you have to make sure you use power words. You have to use words that they're not just stoked. They're not just sitting there like these big words. You got to use words that create some type of emotional connectivity that make the person that's reading your resume want to know more about you. Mm-hmm. You can't just use these, I call them gifted words, these great big old 13 letter words. You know, people think they look smart on the resume. Then I'm like, no, 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 no. You don't want to do that. You want to use words that invoke some type of curiosity mm. about this person. Yeah. And, you know, that's how you bring your game in. So you do talk about certain things, but you also got to have something in there to to back that up. You're not just coming in flat because then your resume look like everybody else's resume. Mm-hmm. So when I do um, my uh, career preparation or like the workshop I'm going to have this weekend, I'll do that. I'm going to give a um, a cheat sheet out as a carryaway for folks to have when you are doing your resume, use some of these statements in it. And these statements feed curiosity about who you are because they can't ask everything in the interview. But if I pick up your resume, it'll make me determine, do I want to interview you? Because resumes are about qualifications. When you get the, the, the interview, you have already qualified for the job. Mm-hmm. So when you go to the interview, most of us still qualifying ourselves as we sit there, we're just trying to push out more and more, but we're repeating what's already on our resume. Mm-hmm. I teach my clients not to do that because if they called you for an interview, you already qualified. Now the interview is about the match. You know, it's about, the personality is about the culture of the place. Are you a good fit? You know, how do, how would you fit in here? That's what interviews are about. And so I teach folks how to interview, how to get the interview through what you're putting on your resume to make somebody say, Oh, that seems interesting. I, I think I want to talk to her, you know? Oh, I love that. Oh, it's so smart. Um, Tanya, we're going to take a, a little detour back in time. Uh, I'd love to hear about um, how you, how, what your life was like when you were growing up, um, like how you kind of became the awesomeness you are today and like whether you were different growing up or you were the same as everybody else or, or kind of like what your, what your life was like, how you were like. Well, before we start, I just want to mention I am doing a career workshop. It's going to be this Saturday, May 30th uh-huh. at 11 a.m. And you can go to my website, drtanyagilbert.com, or you can go to drtanyagilbert at eventbrite.com and register for the workshop. And we'll give more of that information later. But how did I get I'll put links. Hold on. I just want to tell everyone, I'm going to put links down in the show notes uh, for the podcast so you can find them if you, if you can't write that down. 
Okay. And I, um, I don't know even where to start. <laughs> I guess I could say everything about me started, um, right now I live in Los Angeles, but I am from the Midwest. I'm from Chicago. And so everything about me started from when I was a little girl in Chicago. And in every, we all know Chicago is a big city. I came from a family that was pretty much, um, they were working class, basically. I mean, I always tell people I've lived between worlds because I had part of my family was very working class poor. And then I had this other experience of a family that was pretty comfortable, you know, well-to-do. And I had the opportunity of going between the two worlds. When I was younger, when I was a kid, I didn't understand that. And it, it bothered me a lot. And so that's what helped me become Dr. Tanya Gilbert. I started getting curious. Well, why when I go over here, these people are like this and they do this. And when I come back home, which is Chicago, they do this. Now my other family lived in a, a pretty affluent um, suburb of Chicago. And so I would go there and spend times often because my mom passed away and um, my dad passed away soon after. And so I was uh, the oldest girl of seven children. And so I kind of, you know what happened to us older girls? I had a sister younger, but she was like four plus years younger. And so I became like the mom. And How old were you when your parents passed away? Well, I was eight, well, seven, almost eight when my mom passed. Oh my God. And I was... Um, 12 when my dad passed wow and so um but even though my dad was still living when after my mom passed he was very ill he had cancer yeah. and so he wasn't as available as or as accessible and then of course my mom was a single parent even though my father was in my life very much in my life my mom was still, you know, basically a single parent to all of these children. Wow. And um, so it just put me in that kind of unusual, weird sister, mom, that just a thing that's kind of dumped on girls, older girls. And um, it caused me to become very resilient because I had to figure out from that age how to navigate my life you know, because it was about not just surviving for me, but surviving for survival for my siblings, because they were even much more lost than I was, you know. And so uh, my grandmother raised, raised me. Um, my grandmother was my heroine. She was just like the hero of my life. I mean, I have to say all that I am came from what she put in, you know? And, and what I mean by that, the lack of support in certain areas, 
gave me what I needed to challenge myself through life, knowing that it wasn't support there. Yeah. Okay. So I became Dr. Gilbert without, I'm the first in my family to have this high level of education. Um, no one ever talked about anything beyond high school, marriage, family. If you arrived out of high school and you didn't get pregnant and you graduated on time and you didn't drop out, you know, or anything like that, you were very successful. At, at least in the community that I came from, you know, you, you really did it. You graduated from high school, you didn't have any kids and you made it. Well, in that case, I didn't make it because I got pregnant in my senior year, you know. However, I graduated from high school on time, actually a little ahead of schedule. And I had a graduation day. I had a baby that when I went to get my diploma, I carried her up and got the diploma with me. And I went directly to college. But I had some other influences in my life because I had gotten pregnant, you know, that seen me, you know, still trying to make it and showed me a different direction. It's like, you don't have to stop going to school. You don't have to do this or that because she got pregnant. And my grandmother was there when I, I got pregnant. She supported me um, in, you because I was in high school. She supported me with I'll watch the baby, you know, you go to school, you know, and I keep the baby, but when you come home, you still got to be the mama, you know? So she never let me get away from being the mama ever, ever, ever. So that also made me become more resilient because I had to figure parenting out and school out. Yeah. And yeah. And so I did. And I um, went to college and I got my bachelor's degree in uh, business uh, administration. And then I realized that that wasn't um, a workable degree for me. Coming from where I came from, the poor neighborhoods and streets in Chicago, what am I going to do with that? Because then work uh, for women in positions and for, you know, African-Americans was just completely different than now. So I had a degree that was basically worthless. So I went to school and became a nurse and I worked for a nurse as a nurse for a long time. And then I also became a licensed cosmetologist and I did that for a long time. And I've had, and I think that's what helped me with my outlook on careers because I've had so many career paths in my life that I know you can't get stuck. You know, when it works for you, it works. You know, I stopped being a nurse because my eldest daughter had um, health issues that me being a nurse contributed, could have possibly contributed to her being ill. So I didn't want to bring any kind of germs and things home that would make her sick. You know, she had some autoimmune stuff going on. So I stopped nursing. And I started being a cosmetologist and a stylist. And uh, oh my God, it was so much fun. I mean, it, that just opened up a whole new world. But what I noticed about everything I've done, I've been in the field of service. 
You know, we don't look at service in that way, but nurses are service, the police are service, so is the nail technician, so is the person at the grocery store. All of these are, are, are fields of service. So I have always worked in the service industry. And then I start uh, from that working in nonprofits uh, and that started uh, sparking my interest to go back to school because I was um, doing case management work for people that were HIV positive. Um, and I started that when I was nursing and those people were treated so bad, I wanted to do something to help. So I started doing NIA parties, NIA tea parties every Sunday. And with my NIA tea parties, I had this thing called the Black Kettle and I would just collect donations. And like, there were a couple bars that would let me have my little travel party every Sunday in the afternoon. And all the people that were HIV positive came to the party. And anyone that was there, you are either positive or you either was supporting that. And so that created significant change in Chicago. And um, I joined some organizations. I started then being an activist for uh, stigmatized populations. And that started me into that path again all of this kind of brought me to the place where I arrived today. And when I got my doctorate degree, I had um, got another bachelor's degree in applied behavior science. Remember, I want to know why people do what they do and how to help them stop. So I went back to school, got another bachelor's, and that was in applied behavior science. And then I was so excited now because I'm a scientist, you know? <laughs> But then I got a master's degree in um, health psychology. And then I decided I wanted to go further in, with my education and with my ability to help. And so I went, started thinking, well, where do you go from here? And when I was about 40, um, I think I was about 46. I started thinking, what else can I do? I'm looking at my family. Now, I tell you about all this that I did, but in the meantime, my siblings were basically kind of crashing and burning, you know, um, dropping out of school, not finishing, getting involved in drugs and alcohol. And then I noticed there was a lot of um, unidentified mental health stuff in my family. Uh, and just because of my education and my experiences, I could see it, you know, I became aware of it. And I started interacting with my family more as an advocate position to help them. And I said, what else can I do to help? So I decided, you know, I've always wanted to lead by example. And I went to school, I went to the school and signed up to get a doctorate degree. And I was like 46 or 47 years old. And I was working um, for this um, behavior health treatment facility. I had been working there for a long time. My best and my favorite place I've ever worked in my life. And um, I was running a department there. The department that I was running was for people that was dual diagnosed that had mental health issues and 
um, substance abuse. I say try diagnosed because they also all were HIV positive. I was working under Ryan White Initiative Program. And it was so successful that it just made me again want more and more and more. So I went to school and I signed up to go to school to get a doctorate degree, never thinking once that I was going to get in. Never thinking. But I just wanted to show people you had to get out of your own way. And so, and when I got the call for the interview, oh, I was so floored because I never, I honestly, Bevan, did not expect, I did not expect to be invited to attend the school that I registered for because it was one of the top schools in Chicago. It was the, I went to Illinois School of Professional Psychology, which is the grandfather of all professional schools of psychology. It was the first school of professional psychology in the United States to become APA accredited. And so I went for the gusto, never thinking that I was gonna get, get in. And they, this is gonna be really funny to you, they called me for an interview, but it happened to be in July, oh. okay? And every year in July, from July to September, I would go to Michigan Music Festival because I was working long crew. Oh, long crew. Yeah. And so um, this is really a fun story. They said, we need you to come in. And it was the day I was supposed to arrive at Michigan. And that was the only slot they had for an interview. And here I am, you, you know how we arrived at Michigan, right? Huh. And I had my car loaded to the top with tents and everything strapped down on the top of the car. And, you know, I had on these old cutoff shorts and, oh my goodness, it was so funny. And um, I said to the people, I said, well, I, I'm going camping and I can't cancel it because my whole life evolved around the festival. I have to tell you, if it was going to interfere with the festival, I couldn't do it. Even this interview to get into a doctorate program. And they told me, they said, well, just come as you are. And I said, well, I don't know if you want me to come as I am because I'm on my way camping <laughs> and I will be, you know, like in, in shorts and t-shirt and, you know, things tied to the top of my car. Then I'll never forget Dr. Annie Slobick. She was like, come as you are. And I came just like I did when I showed up at the festival. I had on cut up blue jean shorts and a messed up, tore down t-shirt. And I'm sitting at an interview to go into a doctorate program. Oh my God. Before I got to, to the festival, to Heart, Michigan from Chicago, after my interview, they called me and said, congratulations. That's amazing. I mean, I think that also speaks to your skill at interviewing, to be able to like not have to show up looking professional and to still impress people enough with who you are um, that they knew that you were right for their program. That's that's boss interview skills and I also just want to tell people when you go camping for like 
more than two weeks or maybe even more than a week. Like you, I, I, I've only, I only know my experience of packing my car, but someone told me I look like I was Elizabeth Taylor on safari. Like <laughs> there's just so much you need to like feel comfortable. And I, I take, I think you take a similar, uh, approach to camping which is like yes. if I needed to be comfortable it's getting in the car somehow it all had to be there <laughs> the most important thing the things that was the most important was the tent mm-hmm. and you got to have the tent you sleep in and you have to have your closet tent remember mm-hmm. and all your clothes to go in the closet tent so mm-hmm. if you had your tent your clothes and your bed you know you were good and mm-hmm. and I had you know me I had so much more plus I had my children that were going to camp with me mm. So I had all of their crap as well, you know, and we went for this interview and I'll never forget those people. They registered me for my class. I went to the library in Hart, Michigan and registered on the internet for my classes. So when I got out of the festival, Mm -hmm. it was time to start school. Yeah. But they were so taken and that was one of the, outside of Michigan, outside of coming to the festival, being um, such a life-changing event, and I think I told you the other day that there were two things, and Michigan was like one of the two. The Mm -hmm. second thing was this interview with school, you know, just to tell me that it was okay to be who you are. Mm. And that's why they invited me into their program. I mean, I had excellent grades as well, but they invited me into their program because I just brought me to the interview. I had no, no other distractions. Yeah. And me was what they were looking for. And I did my doctorate program and I did the program. Um, it wasn't with the intentions to come out and, and, and get licensed and be a clinical psychologist. It was not for status whatsoever for me. Going to school to get my doctorate was my attempt at saying, it's never too late to live your dream. Mm-hmm. It's never too late to go after anything you want. And in the midst of it, it also taught me it was okay just to be exactly 100% who I am right here, right now in this room. And for right now, that's good enough. And, and, and so that was the other thing, Michigan and, and getting my degree, well, being accepted in the program for the degree. And um, when I came to Los Angeles, um, I knew I did the right thing. I had never been here before. I was sent here through the match program to um, go do my internship. And I never got lost. You know, Los Angeles is a big city with all these little towns attached. And I've never been here, but I never got lost, not even once when I came for the interview. So I extended my stay here for a few days and I kind of rode around and I knew I would be back. I knew California was home for me. I knew Los Angeles was home. And that's the other thing I want folks to know. You can't be afraid to seek out where you're supposed to be, not only financially, 
spiritually is geographical as well. Just because you're born somewhere don't mean you're supposed to stay there forever. We all have a place in life. And if we get out of our way, we'll find that place. It'll call you. You'll feel it. And um, again, I came from the poor neighborhood in Chicago, struggling. And folks say, how can you live in Los Angeles? It's so expensive to live there. But you set your intentions. And my intent was not to be here as Dr. Tanya Gilbert with the house on the hill in Malibu, you know, uh-huh. and the office in Beverly Hills, even though I did have an office in Beverly Hills, because that's what they told me I was supposed to do. You're like, you get done with school, then you have to get an office in Beverly Hills to be accepted in this community of psychologists. Uh-huh. And so I did it. However, it wasn't where I needed to be. My spirit wasn't comfortable there. So of course I left that office in Beverly Hills and got an office in the regular neighborhood with the regular everyday people that I was used to because that's what the purpose of me doing this for is to lead by example. It's never too late to live your dreams. It's never too late to say what you want. It's never not okay to say, you know, I'm a, I'm whatever it is that you are. Yeah. It's okay not to live on somebody else's agenda. And that's what I offer. I teach people how to set their own agenda and live on your agenda because life is like a meeting place. And so we all fit on somebody else's agenda somewhere. And when that part of that meeting is over, you cross out that thing on the agenda. Don't be the X on somebody's agenda. Have your own agenda. Absolutely. Um, can you, let's, will you talk about coming out and like when you came out, like what the climate was around that? Cause I feel like, I think you maybe came out in the eighties or the seventies. Um, I officially came out in the late seventies. Okay. And I say officially because I already knew when I, you know, was like about eight years old or so that I liked girls a lot and um but not there wasn't any role models especially coming from african-american culture and community and you know christianity taboo and i didn't know what any of that this girl stuff meant or what i just know that i liked about 10 girls that live on my block And I knew that the boys that lived on the block that was attracted to me just really got on my nerves. I just didn't want to have anything to do with them, you know, but I just didn't understand what any of that meant. And then um, as I grew older into becoming a teenager, I started hearing the horror stories about, you know, being a lesbian, um, I had a brother that was, um, he was a gay man. And this is just who he was in his soul, his spirit. He's born like that, really. And everybody in our family knew. And they would just say, you know, he's just different. He's special. He's, you know, he's proper, you know, everything except for that he was gay. 
But they didn't bother him when he would take my grandmother's purses and put on her shoes and, you know, imitate being a girl. They just kind of say, he's special, just leave him alone, he's special. But with me, when I finally decided to start presenting myself as being a lesbian, it wasn't okay. And uh, my family was like, um, that's not okay. You're supposed to, you know, have the children, you do this, you do this. They kept trying to connect me with guys and, you know, so yeah, I did have three children and I did get married. Uh, I did all that before I came like out, out, you, you know what I mean? Yeah. I had had I had gotten married and I had three children before I was publicly out. My friends knew. My family suspected, but I didn't come out publicly until uh, I think about 19 I'm going to say 1980. I came out publicly 1980. And that's when I ended my marriage and just live my life as a, a lesbian, actually. But even with that, you still couldn't be like we are today because certain doors wouldn't be open for you, you know? So it was hard enough being a Black woman, you know, and being a single parent and being dark-skinned and being heavy set. And now I'm going to throw being a lesbian in on top of that, you know? So it was hard. And so I just lived in the shadows of being a lesbian uh, for a long time because in the fields I worked in, um, like I was telling you, working as a nurse, working, I worked as a sexual um, victims, rape victims advocate. I've done all of that. But if it had come out that I was a lesbian, I could have lost my job or somebody would accuse me of being sexually inappropriate, you know anything so you have to walk on eggshells with it and so when i decided uh i have two significant stories of when i just really just came on out just forget it i'm i'm, I'm here and uh one was with my family and we were holiday dinner and we were talking about everything you know talk about who's doing this you're doing this and this and so no one asked me questions about my relationship, my anything, like they ask everybody else. And um, they, they said, well, you know, you're going through a period of adjustment. So we know that this is a phase that you're going through. So we're not going to even ask you about anything. At the end of that Thanksgiving dinner, you know, you clean the table off and everything oh, no, 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 don't help, don't do that. We got it, you know, just go and, you know, relax, go do whatever. The dishes that I ate from, I found in the garbage. Wow. My aunt took the dishes and Lord, right now, she's the only, my mother's sister, the only living aunt that I have alive now. And back then, she took my dishes that I ate with and put them in the garbage. She didn't want them in her dishwasher. She didn't want them with anything. So that let me know then that it was not accepted 
but that made me more determined to be me because if you could hurt me like that, then you really couldn't love me the way you say you do. Yeah. And so I just made up my mind. I was just going to be a lesbian and that was it. The other time was, and so that was with that part of the family. The other time was at my house uh, when I started to bring girls home. And um, my sister and my brothers was living in the house with me. Like I say, even as adults, I was still taking care of them. And um, I'm pretty feminine. And the girls that I'm attracted to were more masculine identified, right? And uh, so the girl that I was seeing left her boots on the porch. They were construction boots. Uh-huh. And, you know, they were men construction because girls don't wear boots like that, right? And uh, my sister came in the house and she had these boots in her hand and she was holding them up and I was sitting in the living room and the girl that I was seeing was in the room sleep. So she had been over overnight and my sister holds it up. Can I curse? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. My sister had said, who in the fuck do these shoes belong to? They don't belong to nobody in this damn house. And threw them down right in front of me. And I just looked at her and uh, she said, you got to give your kids a chance. Why are you letting us, now mind you, my kids were gone for the weekend with their, over to their dad's house because they still spend time with their father. And um, so I had the house to myself with the girl there because I still never did want to even though my children came to Michigan and they did everything, I still wanted to help them understand how to be empowered about homosexuality and not to feel shame or not to feel guilty or not to feel, you know, any feel like they had to be gay because their mom was gay. You know, it's a dance. It's really a dance. So when my sister did that, that was the funniest part part, because she was like, I don't like gay people and la, 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 la. And so I just said to her, well, sis, I guess you won't like your sister. When my sister died in 2016 from cancer, I'll never forget. She said, well, sis, I guess I'm an official lesbian. She said, from association, because this whole time that, well, just throughout everything from that day, my friends all start being around always. But whenever somebody needed help with anything, guess who came, who showed up? Uh With my lesbian family. Yep. And when my sister was diagnosed with cancer, I was living here in Los Angeles, and she was still in Chicago. I made one phone call to Chicago and all of my sisters, my lesbian sisters, went and took care of my sister every single day till the day she died. And I'm talking about from 2010 to 2016. My sister never had not one day by herself without the lesbian community being there holding and supporting and taking her to her appointments and bringing her home, living in the house with her to take care of her, everything. And she was just so funny because she was like, 
It used to be the only lesbian that I liked was my sister. But now I guess all lesbians are my sister. So that had a great ending to it. And then my cousin, uh, one of the ones that was so opposed to me being a lesbian and rejected me, I could come to your house, but don't bring your friends. Um, about two years ago, she came to me and said, I have to apologize. I just never really knew how amazing you were. You know, I let all of that stuff get in the way. So we have to keep being ourselves. So my coming out was bittersweet. You know, with my family, it was a struggle. With work, you couldn't really, people always guess, they don't know. And even to this day, because I look the way I look, to this very day, I'm opposed to anybody coming out now. That's one of the things that I um, don't encourage people to do. Don't come out. I mean, when do you stop coming out? What are you coming out of? You're coming out of being yourself. So you don't need to come out. Why do you have to keep declaring who you are in life? Mm. So I don't do that, you know, and I have people... I have real good friends that are, that, you know, are heterosexual. And I remember one coming to me and said, oh, Dr. Tanya, I didn't know you was a lesbian. I said, really? I said, and? I said, what are you? Are you a lesbian or are you heterosexual? What are you? That's how I responded to her. What are you? (laughs) And she said, I'm heterosexual. I said, oh, okay. Well, I didn't make any assumptions. I just think you're who you are. And that's what I encourage everybody to do. Don't keep coming out. Because every time we do that, we are giving society the permission to keep us in. Mm. Every time we come out, we're saying it's okay for you not to accept me because I need to come and give you an explanation why I'm the way I am. So I talk, I, I, I really advocate n- not coming out. Just be who you are. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about um, when you first started going to the festival? Like, uh, what, what year was that? And like, um, I know you like, you shared with me that you had some resistance to going because you didn't like mm-hmm. camping and you didn't like the idea of camping, but... Um, I'm just curious, like, can you tell us, like, when you started going and, like, what that was like? Because you were there till the very end, too. Yes, I was there from when I did start, I didn't quit, okay? Um, I came in the 90s, early 90s, was start working. I had ventured there for one weekend prior to that. It just, you know, kind of peeking to see see what they were doing, you know? And it seemed to be pretty cool, but it was clear I didn't know anything about camping because the weekend that I showed up, I put my tent in the middle of the road because that was the only clear path. Everything else had all the ferns <laughs> in it. <laughs> and when I got there, you know, you go through registration and they say, because um, it was myself and a friend of mine, and they say, find a clear spot to put your tent in. And so 
you know, they take you around this whole thing. You think you went a long way, but you really didn't go that far from the front gate when you get to Dart, because I was a Dart camper. And, um, and Dart, Dart RV. Uh, Dart stands for? Um, Differently Abled Resource Tip. Okay. Yeah. So, Dart. and you were in Dart RV, which is more on the outskirts, closer to the front gate. Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. okay. I've always had um, physical challenges um disabilities and so i that's where we were going to camp and they dropped us off right there and so it was the between dart rv and the twilight zone where the the um porter janes were yeah that's where i set my tent up because they said find a clear space and and that was clear <laughs> and i'll never forget the coordinator of dart came and knocked on my tent that morning and said, uh, I think you might be interested in moving your tent because if you don't, you're going to get ran over. This is the street where the cars and everything drive. And I was just so floored. They show you how much I didn't know about camping. But it was great. It was so exciting. The energy there was so different. And so my friends that have been going there and working there for years um, didn't know I had snuck a little weekender there. Ah. Otherwise, I would have been upset because I would never go with them. But I drove up when it used to stay open all night. Uh-huh. I came up like at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. And uh, it was great. But then when I started to working there, it was in the 90s, and a friend of mine needed a ride uh, there, and she would need a ride home. And she said, well, why don't you just come and work? And I was like, I had long red fingernails, you know, full makeup. This is how I dressed every day. Mm-hmm. What was I going to do in the woods? I couldn't, I didn't think I could get any of that, in, that convenience in the woods, right? Mm-hmm. My only thoughts and knowledge about camping is when I was a camp counselor in high school, you know, with the kids and the Boy Scouts and that's what I thought when I thought about camping. So I wasn't interested. And my friends had tried to get me to go for about 20 years. And I never went. And so that weekend that I went, and then when my other friend needed a ride, may she rest in peace now. She's not with us anymore. But she made a double application. On her application, she wrote my information in red on top of her application she wrote in black. I got a call from the festival and they said, okay, you can come and work. This is really the first time I was there working. They put me in, you know how you pick an area? Yeah. They put me in the um, sober, it was called sober support tent then, not sober support resources. It was sober support tent. And they put me in that tent to work. And I was, okay, this is cool, because this is in line with what I do for a living, so I can handle this, you know. And I'll never forget when I uh, showed up there, it was um, V, let her soul rest in peace. She was there. It was um, her partner, uh, White Wolf. And it was Lori. I don't remember Lori's last name. 
But those are the people that was running that tent. And Lori um, was paralyzed, you know, from the waist down. She's in a wheelchair. So I thought I was just going to come and decorate the tent and put some paper out and just walk around and be cute. And remember, I have long red fingernails. Keep that visual. <laughs> so I sit down and here comes um, Lori. She said, did they tell you what to do yet? I said, well, no. They said, just hang out and talk to people when they come and welcome them and you know, just kind of keep things straight. She said, well, there's a fire pit that's over, down, around, wherever, and we have to dig the fire pit. I said, okay. She says, so I need you to help me take this stuff to, to dig the fire pit. If you go get the shovel and all this, I said, okay. So, of course, I went in and I got everything, but I didn't know I was supposed to dig the fire pit. So when Lori came back, I was sitting at the place where the fire pit was supposed to get dug. I was sitting there with the shovel when she got back. And she said, well, what happened? You didn't dig the fire pit. And I said, I was supposed to do it? She said, yeah. And I said, I don't know anything about digging the fire pit. Lori got out of that wheelchair. I don't know. Have you ever, did you ever meet Lori? Uh, I think I did maybe briefly. Okay. Lori got out of the wheelchair and she remember she's paralyzed from the waist down. She's sitting there digging a freaking fire pit. I felt so bad and so useless because here's this woman Digging a fire pit that can't even stand up. <laughs> I tell you, that was my first experience. I dug that damn fire pit. And I only broke two nails. <laughs> okay. <laughs> From that day forth, I've been able to do anything in life that I wanted to do. Because I always have this visual of Lori. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. I do know what you mean. Being there, being there was so empowering for me. It was such, oh my God. I had already had to overcome so many obstacles in my life. But being at Michigan changed struggle beyond to beyond resiliency because it just never became struggle anymore for me yeah you know right now in my life because of the festival i overcame so many things i overcame the fear of bugs every time i seen a bug i want to smash it now i see a bug i pick it up and send it home i stopped being afraid of snakes and wildlife there I had an incident that I was hollering and screaming in the middle of the night because it was I thought it was a bear in my tent. It wasn't a bear, it was a raccoon. <laughs> Visualize that. Um did it run away when you started hollering? No, because oh. I was outside the tent hollering. Oh. Matter of fact, I was it wasn't even my tent, it was um the health tent. And the raccoon, the light was on in the, the tent, and the raccoon was on top of the shelf. 
And so the fur looked like it was tall, you know, the shadow made yeah. it look like this big thing. Oh my God, I was screaming bloody mur murder. <laughs> I fell on the ground. And uh, someone that we recently lost, Lisa Lisa, oh, Lisa this Lisa. little old lady came out and she goes, baby, it's okay. There's no bears. And I'm screaming, yeah, <laughs> just live it. So remember I told you I camped in Dart RV. Uh -huh. She said, so where do you live? And I told her, she said, well, I'll get somebody to escort you home. I said, okay, so I'm sitting in the belly bowl, right? Here come this little kid. This little girl was about 12 or 13 years old. <laughs> With a flashlight. Hey, are you ready to go? I'm going to escort you to your tent. You know, she was one of the kids, you know, helping out in security or whatever. I had never been so out there in my life. So that was my lesson on courage. Just the courage to do something that you're afraid of. Yeah. You know, this little girl had courage to take me to my tent. And I'm like, well, who's going to bring you back? And she's like, oh, I'm fine. I'm Okay. So from that point on, I started learning to walk through those woods by the moonlight ah. being safe knowing I was safe knowing I was okay you know just finding the courage to do something different to move beyond my comfort zone because our comfort zones are these cages and boxes that we allow ourselves to get trapped in so that was my lesson one for that I mean I've had other things in my life that I had to be resilient and get in there and do it. But this is what I'm saying. When things go beyond resiliency, when you just let yourself be and knowing that you will be okay. So that was that experience. So as I experienced Michigan um, through everything, even get my doctorate degree through everything, Michigan became my lifeline it was my lifeline i knew if i made it to august that i would get enough of whatever it is that i needed that was going to let me go for the rest of the year yeah so i i left relationships i quit girlfriends over michigan i quit jobs over michigan i didn't take jobs over michigan it was my lifeline it really, really, really helped me be who I am. And and all of my milestones that I've had to encounter since then, uh, Michigan was a big part of it, you know. Um, my daughter passed away, and the women at Michigan was there to hold me, you know, through that. Uh, my brother passed away while I was at camp, and those sisters there brought me back home to see about my brother and then brought me back to Michigan after I took care of all of the arrangements. So I'm saying it's been my growing place and it's been my holding place, wow. you know, and I, that, 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 that spirit lives in me. 
when I think of things that are difficult or um, hard to even accept with life, you know, um, things that shock people. I don't get shocked because I went to Michigan and I remember seeing the women walking around with strap-ons and I had never been exposed to nothing like that in my life. You know what I mean? I had never seen anything like that, you know? I, and, and, and the women of color tent, you know, I had never been exposed to so many powerful black women and brown women and red women and yellow women. I mean, from all over the world, it was just like something that was lost in time. Michigan was something like that was put in time and space and it was like a secret society uh-huh. that you were a member of. And as long as you were a member of the society that you would always be okay in your life. Uh-huh. And so I have a family that's a greater family that's all over the world. I mean, I speak with Chaika. You remember Chaika? Yeah. I talk to Chaika all the time, you know? I talk to Queenie all the time. I mean, even though festival's not going on, I talk to them all the time. Yeah. You know? There's so many people that you just, once you're a family, you just never stop. So Michigan really, really helped me endure everything michigan was my mother michigan was my older sister Uh all of my children came to michigan i raised them bringing them to michigan my grandchildren came to michigan my niece came to michigan so it was a family affair for us i love that so much um, I also, I super identify with like learning courage by learning how to just trust that you're safe in your environment and learn how to walk by the moonlight. Mm-hmm. Um, in my neighborhood here, everyone always asks like, do you have a flashlight? Blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't need a flashlight. Like, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like I trust the environment I'm in and I know the path. And I'm like, mm-hmm. it's so interesting. Like how that, like, I never really thought of that as a courage development, but I'm like, yeah. Cause I remember like that same walk that the 12 year old accompanied you on like mm-hmm. all, that is a long walk and it's scary at night because it's just yeah. so dark and you don't know like you're not seeing the same familiar milestones mm-hmm. um, and it's just it's it's one of those things but once you once you've done it dozens of times then if you trust yourself you can start to really learn mm-hmm. just trust whatever's going on and I think that's like mm-hmm. a skill that kind of courage that can translate into every arena it does yeah it does and you know ironically also from michigan and the thing that i carry and i have out here in the world i learned not to be afraid of nature Hmm. i learned not to be afraid of the universe I learned that everything out there in those woods, that 650 some odd acres of land had a purpose and was there on purpose. I learned that and I respected it. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And it translated to everything I do out here. And the one thing that I, when I evaluated my only fear that I had 
when I was the last camp, the last day of Michigan, that it closed and that fear was still present and that fear is still here. It wasn't about the woods. It wasn't about the universe. It was about people. Mm. It was about the militia out there in Michigan, not the sisters, you know, but the militia, the the folks that lived out there that didn't want lesbians and didn't want blacks and didn't want, you know, people of color. And, you know, for the most part, the people out there loved us and accepted us. But there was this eerie thing that I used to always say, should I be armed out here? You know, are we going to wake up one day and these militia men or whoever they are going to just come and take over us? But then I start thinking about us. Say, so can you imagine them coming in here with all of these women? Because, you know, Michigan wasn't just for lesbians. It was for any woman. Mm-hmm. And that was the other thing that was so great. It was, you didn't have to be a lesbian to go to Michigan. Any woman could be in Michigan, any woman. Mm-hmm. And so that made me feel safe because I knew all of us women together, together we we were winning. And so like out here in life every day, I'm connected to the universe, but I always still stay aware of those people. And you heard me say aware now and not afraid Mm. because you have to move beyond fear. You have to let fear work for you because if you don't let fear work for you, fear will work against you. It either works for you or it works against you. If you let fear be the answer, you're going to be stuck. You're going to be locked in those boxes you're going to always be coming out. You're going to always be asking permission to live. And that's it. But if you let fear be your question, there are endless answers. Mm. So you won't be stuck anywhere. You ask, why am I, why am I afraid? Okay, why am I afraid of this cup of coffee? Instead of saying, oh, I can't drink a cup of coffee. Oh, no. You pick it up and you embrace it. Why am I afraid of this cup of coffee? What's in it? Get curious. Fear is the greatest teacher it is. Fear is the thing that make you grow just exponentially. Fear. So I always encourage folks to make friends with their fear. Let fear be your question and not the answer. Because when you answer something, it stops. But when you question, you continue to grow. Because change is going to happen. We talked about this yesterday. And that's why when we're afraid, because we're just afraid of change, something different, the unknown, don't know the outcome. But change is going to happen. It's going to always happen. And you're going to have to either embrace it or not, because it's going to happen with your permission or not. So I say change, accept, and adapt. That, and that was Michigan. Oh my God, that is so brilliant. Um, Tanya, thank you so much. This has been an amazing conversation. I feel like um, just, I, I'm like, I love your perspective and I love what you offer in terms of like career counseling and just behavior um, 
modification counseling, but then also just like the depth of experience you have and the awareness of, um, cause like wisdom is like applied knowledge, right? Like anybody can learn stuff, but like to actually create wisdom and to be wise, you have to actually just evaluate experience and continue yeah. to adapt and get better. And I just, oh, you have it, you have it all. Like, um, and I love how many career paths you've had and, um, and just, you know, also how you receive the nurturing that you experience at, at Mishfest and just like brought that into the entire resonance of your being. Um, uh, well, you know, it's part of what I do, all of this is part of what I do the, you know, I've been focusing on career because of the COVID because it affected me too. You know, I am a pre-licensed um, psychologist. I'm a pre-licensed clinical psychologist and I'm a transformational life coach and I'm an ordained minister. So when I look at all of my areas of service, the COVID affected everything. You, you, you see what I'm saying? Yeah. The ministry, people are losing their sense of spirituality and faith. They're questioning God because of this and you know, losing so much and how could God let this happen? So I have to work with them on their spirit, you know, keep that spirit holding. Then when I look at it from the perspective of being a clinical therapist, a, a pre-licensed psychologist, it's like, okay, there are people that you work with, they change the format, you know, where we could do, you know, teletherapy, telehealth, but there are folks that maybe in a place in their mental health that this don't work for, you know, and their therapists that this don't work for. There's not conditioned to connect with clients like this. Yeah. So a lot of those same people lost a lot of their clients, you know. I mean, I had my first experience with my medical doctor on telehealth. I mean, I'm showing him my knee taking the phone, holding it down to my leg. <laughs> you know what I mean? Trying yeah. to show the doctor my, I had knee replacement, right? And so they're looking, I have a compromised immune system. So of course I can't go in and I'm of that age, you know, mm -hmm. I'm 65. So it's like, all of it don't, you can't go. But that was weird. You know, having the doctor to look at my leg on, on a, holding a cell phone down. So all of this has been so challenging. And then all of the businesses that closed up, that won't open again, you know, all, all of that, all of the people feeling, you know, how do I go from here, you know? And then when I look at myself as the transformational life coach, that's the person that everybody kind of need because I'm helping you transform your career. I'm helping you transform your personal life. How do you interact and create life with your kids? They're stuck at home. You know, how do you navigate this whole thing? So as a transformational life coach, it's not just career, it's career, it's relationships. I, um, I help folks get closer to their spirituality, um, aging, aging in and out, you know, older people changing, younger people, you know, aging up, you know, just that's what I do as a transformational life coach. And so I'm focusing on career this currently because it's the thing that has been most significantly hitting our economy. And I just did a, a, um, 
event is called We Will Thrive. Together We Will Thrive. It was a fundraiser uh, for No Kid Hungry. And if folks want to donate, it's still up. They can still go and donate to No Kid. It's about feeding children worldwide. But my segment was um, about the new normal. And I say to folks, my perspective on the new normal is different. Because every day I wake up is a new normal. Nothing is the same normal that I had yesterday. You know, we call normal because we wake up in the same bed, house, life. But if you really live in that life and embrace in that life, you creating your life every single day. And so the question is, how do you move forward from here? Because there's no bouncing back. It's like, what did you take from there with you? to keep moving, you know, moving forward. And that's where we are right now. So if anybody want any, you know, encouragement, if they want to do career, you know, counseling, I'm there. If they need some spiritual counseling, I'm there. Struggling in relationships, I'm available. And I just love doing everything I do. This is my passion. I would do it for free if I didn't have to pay bills. (laughs) How uh, how can people reach you? Through your website? Well, the best place to reach me um, is through my website, which is drtanyagilbert.com. But I'm also on all social media platforms as Dr. Tanya Gilbert. So I keep it real simple. And even if a person want to call, they can call and talk to me directly. And you need to dial Dr. Tanya, one eight four four Dr. Tanya. So I'm real easy. If you Google Dr. Tanya Gilbert, just Google me, Dr. Tanya Gilbert, Los Angeles. And I kind of pop up everywhere. I love that. And you work with people all over the world, right? Not just in LA. Yes, I work with people all over the world. Hashtag cook. all over the world. Yeah. Oh, I love and that. I also um people have a tendency because you can look me up on psychology today and all kind of platforms and you know they force you to put rates in and all of that which are the rates however i work with people with most budgets you know Mm -hmm. if if they live in if, if they live in california i take insurance if they don't live in california i will try to help work something out within what's affordable for them it depends on if they're doing life coaching or if they need want to do psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. I also, on my website, I wrote a book, uh, Life Coaching Made Simple. And what it's a little book. It's little. It's under 50 pages. But it helps you understand the difference in life coaching and uh, psychotherapy. It prepares you to help you know what you need to look for in selecting a life coach or a psychotherapist. It lets you understand where are you in the process of change? Where are you? Are you contemplating, pre-contemplating, maintenance? It helps you understand that. I also give um, some exercises in it to help you relax and hold you while you, you know, find a therapist. It also gives you questions to ask the therapist on your first meeting. And then it has questions when you, after you have your first consult, consult to see if your needs were met and if this was a great fit. All in under 50 pages. And so you can get that book digitally on my website. 
or you can get a hard copy. You order from my website, and that's drtanyagilbert.com. I also have um, relaxation um, meditation CDs. Um, it's a digital uh, version, and it's a um, learn how to meditate, learn how to connect with the universe, what is meditation, how to create your own meditations. And so that's on my website as well. So just go to my website. It's full. It's full. So many resources. Yeah. Uh, Tanya, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much. You've just always been such a light in my life and in my world. And I'm so grateful that we reconnected and that you were willing to come on here and share your story. I am so happy to. I mean, because, you know, I'll do this talk to you all day. I'm so happy we reconnected. It feels like home, you know, it feels so comfortable. It feels like home. Uh, and I remember seeing you running around with all your little outfits on and I said, <laughs> there she goes. And I always just admired you being so brave to wear some of the things. I remember your wet, red and white polka dots with the little ribbons. And I remember so many of your outfits. You'll never, you just never know who's looking and, and just admiring you know, your courage to even do it, you know. I have yeah. to say, it, was, it wasn't even me. Like, you talked about V Kingsley earlier um, on your mm -hmm. sober support team, and she, like, was kind of an early person. And you, too, honestly. Like, just seeing flamboyant femmes being willing to show up in the woods with long red fingernails and, like, wild outfits, like, gives permission. And, yeah. like, and then once I had permission, then I just did it. And now what's interesting, too, is I really, like, you know, we don't have that festival anymore. Um, and there's other little things that I do that are, like, festival, like, little mini festivals, like the Glowing Goddess Getaway I was telling you about. But, like, you know, I'm just, now that I can't go anywhere, I'm, like, I'm wearing these outfits here. Like, I just, like... <laughs> When I was moving, I moved last week and like I didn't, all my clothes like that I had been wearing were mostly like warm, like cold weather clothes and it was just mm -hmm. starting to warm up and I had just like moved my entire closet, but I didn't really have access to any of my other clothes, but I was like, well, I have all my hanging clothes. So I just started wearing really fun, wild outfits just because, because mm -hmm. like whatever, it's COVID, I can walk through my neighborhood and like if I delight yeah, right. someone, because I'm wearing like a, a seafoam green tutu, I'm <laughs> Somebody. Oh, that's so fun. Yeah. You know, and I just, another funny thing, I just had um, floors put in my house, some new flooring laid. And so, again, you know, I'm, you already know I'm that pioneer woman. Huh. And um, I, I went and got all the supplies. Every time I have anything done, I go get everything myself. Remember, in Michigan, we built Michigan. Yeah. We built every nail and board, everything. Then I was raised by a woman that had the same spirit as Lisa Vogel, but it was just in our house, you know, about building your own, whatever you need, you just do it. Yeah. And so um, the guy ran out of the, the uh, he ran into a, a problem with the floor and needed a board, board to replace the floor, you know, actually the, replace the floor. So then he started writing this list and I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm, I'm writing the list because I know you like to go get your own stuff. I said, oh, I don't need that. I said, I have a membership at Contractors Warehouse and <laughs> I was like, and there's my toolbox over there. So I know exactly what floor you need. I know what nails you need. I know everything that you need. He said, you know what? I said, exactly. 
So here I come back with all of this stuff for him to finish the floor. He said, have you ever did this? Absolutely I have. <laughs> you know, I am very familiar with a hammer and a nail with fingernails. That's what he was so impressed. He was like, you took the carpet up in that room, but you got long nails. And I said, they never got in the way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah, so I'm still doing, I'm not digging fire pits, but I pulled up carpet in my house with my long fingernails. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Getting it done. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Tanya. I really love you. And I so appreciate you uh, being here and just sharing your wisdom with all of us. Anytime. And let's stay connected. Absolutely. Stay connected. Okay. Let's stay connected. And I love you. And I love that you bring in this goodness to the world because we need to hear good stories. Yeah. We need to, to see the human in people. Yeah. And that's what this feels like. You, 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 you providing an opportunity to, to, to be human, to let people see who you are, not, what you do not the labels yeah absolutely absolutely thank you thank you so much for having this platform oh yay thank you